Welcome, everyone. This is Mia Ferroletto, publisher of New Observations magazine. Welcome to New Observations. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to James Tunney. James is a very talented artist, writer, lawyer from Ireland, who's also a mystic. I had the um, pleasure of listening to at least a half a dozen of his interviews with Jeffrey Mishlove on New Thinking Aloud, and I was totally captivated. So, James, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Mia. It's kind of hard to follow that fantastic introduction. <laughs> well, we're delighted to have you here, and I know our audience will be very interested um, in hearing about you and your work. Um, I, I just want to add at the beginning here that New Observations Magazine is about to publish part two of Consciousness and Contact, and we'll be featuring um, a dozen of, of James's paintings and his writing, and also two interviews uh, Jeffrey did with James um, at the time they were doing their series together. So we're doubly delighted uh, <laughs> to have you um, at New Observations. Well, thank you very much for that opportunity. It's a fantastic uh, magazine, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to a different audience. I think it's been fantastic the way you have facilitated interaction between people in different domains who have very similar interests and, and at this time it's very very important that people who have similar spiritual and mystical paths begin to assist each other uh, and I think you're certainly facilitating that from your own mystical path and from the various uh, endeavors that you're engaged in which are very exciting uh, I've, I've been paying attention to your direction and, and your your work with the Lakota is very interested uh, interesting I've been very impressed with their history and uh, of course uh, the, the, the great leaders that they have had and they are an inspiration to other people around the world and sometimes they need to be made aware of the importance that other people uh, believe that they represent in, in, in the emerging global consciousness. So I think you're, you're acting as, as a midwife, can we say, to some of these uh, relationships. It's a very important role in this, at this time. I, I honestly feel I'm doing my best work right now, and um, at the at the ripe old age of 64, it feels great to be able to say that. <laughs> well, 64. Now the, uh, you mentioned that 64 is a great a great number from the the I Ching and the chessboard and a number of it's a very mystical number. Um, so it's no surprise, perhaps, that 64 is is, is a very good year. And also, one thing that I think is important in the mystical path that shouldn't be ignored is that there is something to be attained from uh, from maturity. That Jung talked about 
40 as being a, a key starting age in relation to spiritual maturity. And certainly in the Native American tradition, elders have always have had a privileged place that they deserve. And in contemporary society, uh, in other countries, especially elders have been uh, have a terror or their position is being diminished and they have been isolated. So the the reality of spiritual evolution demonstrates that age is is a very, very important factor in the evolution of wisdom. Uh, So uh, I I think it's it's no surprise that uh, you're blossoming and and, and, uh, uh, at the age you are now. I I agree with you. Um, I'm happy to say that... um, the audience is now there. Um, I think for all of us, more and more people are going within, and the virus, I think, has given people time and space to do that. Um, so it's 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 a very um, beneficial time for us to be having this conversation and others like us to be doing so as well. I think the sharing of ideas is really spreading. So tell us um, about your yourself and your your background and how you began on your own mystical journey. Okay, well, uh, I come from a working class family in Dublin. I had five sisters. There was another couple of children that didn't survive, so it would have been six sisters. And then last year I found I had another half-sister in California, uh, so, really, I had seven sisters, and people say, oh, you must be spoiled. But the reality <laughs> was I had five PhDs in psychological manipulation. <laughs> I, know, I, 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 get on great with, I get on great with my sisters. A very happy, happy family, Irish Catholic family. Um, and <coughs> both my parents were brought up on a farm, so we had contact with the land. And... That that was very important. When I think when I was watching my grandfather on his farm, he and when I remember him out with a an old-fashioned handheld plow, it was exactly the same as I saw in medieval pictures in Europe hundreds of years beforehand. So they were living a very uh, a life that wasn't much different from life in medieval times in some places in Ireland at that time. Ireland was 90% uh, agricultural. A lot of people lived on the land in in very uh, impoverished circumstances. But although they were impoverished, they had a very deep spirituality. And part of the narrative of the current times is that it was very backward time. Everything was bad. Everything was bleak. And that paints a very distorted picture. In in fact, there's quite an ideological uh, reason or motivation behind a lot of the effort to make the path seem like a, a desperate, nasty, brutish uh, place. Um, and certainly there was a lot of problems in the, in, in the countryside, particularly created by hundreds of years of colonialism. But the, there was nevertheless a deep spirituality, a deep attachment to the land, a deep attachment to things like water and the sacredness of water. 
uh, and of uh, animals and the changing seasons and an awareness of the, the other world and a fascination with stories, with talking to each other. And I think, for example, that I, I don't know that it's just been nostalgic, but I think that a lot of people had more twinkles in their eye, can you say, or can I say, and they had more kind of life in them. Uh, and it was, it, there was more manifest. I'm not, again, I'm not glorifying the past, but this is a thing that is easily lost in a very urban environment, in a very technological environment. Uh, there was more interest still, if I go down to the west of Ireland, you can still find a uh, residual interest in people, that people kn know who your grandfather was or your great-grandfather, what they did and tell stories, and they're interested in what you do or what, what, where you fit into the world. Uh, and that's a very, very healthy and human thing. There's a sense of a deeper belonging as well as some kind of attachment to the land. So I think uh, I was at the end. I didn't realize that those feelings about connection with the land, for example, were, were changing very, very rapidly. Uh, and the view of the past was, was changing as well as part of uh, the idea of uh, an industrial progressive society. So the, that Catholic background was there, but right behind that and deeply connected with it was an idea of that Celtic connection with the land, which is more similar to indigenous indigenous perspectives. Now, that obviously has been under threat through uh, various struggles over, over the hundreds of years, over centuries, but it was still there. And even in the Catholicism, when I think of my grandmother and other women, my, one of my mother's sisters is still alive in London, uh, and I, I talk to her regularly on, on, on the phone, and every time I go over to London, I meet her and we have a great laugh. And she has this type of spirituality, which is uh, I associate with Irish women in particular, not just not just women, but certain women uh, and and men. It was a very primitive sense of religion. It wasn't very pious. It was more consistent with. I think when I read about the great spirit or the great mystery in, in uh, Lakota terms or in, in, in Native American terms, it was less defined, it was less pious, it was less judgmental, it was more associated with a sense of energies moving between, uh, between this world and that and with the other world. And, uh, for example, my, my grandmother... She, she, she wouldn't tell you. They wouldn't tell you these things. But if you dug a bit deeper, you could find out. She she saw things in terms of the Holy Spirit. Everything was about the Holy Spirit. But she wouldn't go around trying to convert people. They that was a part of their way of coping with the world and with great challenges. And again, it, it's very very similar to what I've encountered with native peoples. It's it's not as it's not as distinct as people make out, and it's certainly not the types of Christianity that one would associate with certain practices which were often negative. So there's, um, we shouldn't oversimplify some of these, these narratives about what Christianity is. Or, or. So in, in that context, also, there's an awful lot of prehistoric remains in Ireland. So I was, I was very interested in places like Newgrange and other uh, megalithic tombs and, and places of worship 
that go back thousands of years that demonstrate that the people that lived there had a very, very advanced uh, idea and interaction with the stars and with the, with the heavens uh, and with the powers in, of energy in the earth and with the, the, the fields of energy in the earth. Uh, and that's, they're littered all over the country still, the prehistoric remains that demonstrate that there were people there who were who lived in harmony with the with with the the world around them, but yet had obviously a strong desire for spiritual evolution. Uh, so, so so that presence is, is is there in Ireland. And from the time I was small as well, I was open to every every uh, option on spirituality that was there. I remember when I was in the 70s when, when my sister had a book on yoga and I still remember, I can still see the pictures there wasn't many people in, in that area that were interested, <laughs> were interested in yoga but, <laughs> I, well, I, I opened that and I said okay I recognise this, I see this that's, that's, that's right uh, and they, they, they stick in my head as well as so, so I, I was open to them and I, I followed certain interests, I was very interested in, in Taoism and in uh, the practices associated with, uh, with with Taoism and their conception of the world, again, a conception of the world which is very base, based on the earth and nature and cycles and water and energy and, and the oddities of, of nature and the behaviors of nature, how, this, how for example, the water... Uh, which is the softest force can wear away the hardest force and principles that are uh, relevant to other contexts that the biggest comes from the smallest for example um, that we are we're people are being locked down because of one of the smallest things uh, in the world uh, that uh, the new nuclear explosions come from splitting the atom etc there are certain principles that recur from simple observations that native people had so uh, for me, it was very rich. It was very rich to sit around talking to old men around fireplaces, as I used to do in my old relations. They, now, there's a narrative which says that when you're on your own, you should be lonely, but these guys were very, very happy, the old bachelors. <laughs> they always <laughs> laugh, and so it kind of goes against the idea that you should be sad. They, they, I talk about the field um, and uh, the film The Field, they filmed it in a field where my grandfather used to mine sheep. It was actually his uncle's field. But they used to send the kids out to the, to the, the family uh, and farm them out or foster them out for little short periods so that the family relationship would build up. And that's a very, again, native cultural uh, practice. And they, they, they made the film The Field there in, in 1992, I think, uh, and I, I, I used to have, again, to go down to places like that, to, to, to feel a connection to the land, but not just that, to, to have a connection to the land that you have a relationship with. And I was talking to, to some young people, well, one young man in particular, a very nice man that I, I met in the context of martial arts here, and he, his view would be quite, I suppose, uh, of a particular political uh, persuasion and, and, and 
I was asking about this connection with land, and he was totally against the idea that anyone has any special connection with, with, with land, you know, because he saw that as a kind of, I suppose, right-wing fascist idea of, of blood and soil and all that. So uh, that's a very distinct, a different perception from the way that I saw the connection between Irish people and the, the land. So I, I saw the connection as one similar to native people, that the land has to be respected, the spirits of your ancestors are there, you're connected with it, and as a result of that, you must protect it. So if you cut that connection between people and, and, and the land, it's very, very easy then to displace with other, with other rationales. And, and I find that uh, a difficult one. For example, they found gold, I think it was about 20 years ago, a bit longer, um, in, the West, in that area. So they knew that it was a massive amount of gold but the, the locals opposed that because they informed themselves about the processes of extracting gold, and they realized that the environment would be destroyed uh, if that happened, the water would be ruined. So they opposed it, although there would have been short-term gains associated with uh, industry, etc. So I think that the, uh, it's a mistake not to, not to value that connection that people have with land, and well, especially with native Native American people, and we can see that um, in both Australia, as a result of the Mabo case, and, and the, uh, in, in the Oklahoma case, for example, in the United States, that uh, legal, the legal trajectory is in favour, uh, hopefully, in the common law world of re-establishing some of the, the legal rights to land, but more importantly than that is the spiritual connection with land. So, uh, I, I would say that my coming from a, a Catholic uh, background, and again, I'm not going to denigrate, as is very, very common for people to do, and uh, identify all the, the flaws in the, uh, in the church is, is approach, which is easy to do, and I agree with a lot of the criticism. But it didn't mean that there wasn't within it something that people could uh, extract from it. There was the spiritual connection a uh, value is there in any in any religion, uh, but the, the the Catholic background as a start was informed probably more so by that Celtic connection, uh, a spiritual connection, an ancient connection which still survived and was there in a fragmentary form, which one can one could imbibe if one was open to it, uh, and the tradition that was there behind it, going back to to Yeats and the people to the Celtic twilight, back to uh, other uh, other people, artists and, and writers, and thinkers, uh, and the. But I, I would describe myself as cosmopolitan in the sense that uh, I was very very open to Eastern and Oriental uh, influences and thought, and I looked everywhere for anything that had insight. And, and from a cosmopolitan perspective. I identified the perennial wisdom. It's not, 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 not solely constrained to how Aldous Huxley or people would, would identify it, but the idea that the same structure of wisdom is there everywhere. It's not cross-cultural. It wasn't something that was given from one people to, to another. 
but it's there in every human being, in, in the human race in general. And that, uh, that idea, when, when I lived in, I, I studied law for seven years, uh, and after studying law for seven years and three degrees and qualifying for, as a barrister, I kind of had enough of law. I said, I, I need to do something else or I'll become some kind of weirdo. I need to. So I went <laughs> off to, to the north of Spain to paint, teach English, and to, to do something different. Uh, and in the north of Spain, in the Basque country, it's very, very interesting because you have the caves and the cave paintings, the, the prehistoric uh, cave paintings. That you, it's difficult, more and more difficult to get into the originals, but I remember going to the caves in Santa Mamina, for example. So you go into a small little cave, and, 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 and it's very uh, quite confined, and you go in, and then you see the beautiful, the beautiful artwork inside the the animals that are, are long gone from Spain that were, that were done they say 15,000 years ago now they're realizing they're a lot older than that the, the, the other paintings in the Basque area are 40,000 years they're very very old so those were very very uh, important to me it, it, I was always interested in painting and painting for me is the essential the essential spiritual and cultural practices of, of Europe in particular. Uh, but in all cultures, you will see this desire to utilize pigment on paper or on stone or, or whatever to represent the spirit world. And you can see that very, very clearly when you go into some of these caves. There's a magical spiritual dimension to it. And that's the dimension. They say that a lot of the Irish people came from the Basque country so you're kind of I felt I was going back a bit in, in the in the uh, in the ancestral uh, journey but still it's the same process we're trying to make sense of symbols and connections with this with with the with the spirit world and um, I, I'm, it, that art tradition I see going up through the Renaissance up through the expressionism impressionism uh, and, and all the the evolution of the visual arts in, uh, in relation to painting. So when I'm painting, I feel it's the same process as the guys that were doing the sh in the shamanic context in the caves in, in places like Santa Mamina, Altamira, and Lascaux, and that. So uh, and then it, I, I travelled around Spain a lot when I had time. Of course, if you go to the south of Spain, you see the, the Moorish influence, the Alhambra and Granada and Cordoba uh, and Toledo, and you see the triangular influence of, the, the, of Christianity, Judaism and Islam when they, for a, a few hundred years, um, well, for the Moors were in control of Spain for 800 years. Uh, and you see the interaction of the different cultures there and of course the great a lot of the Kabbalah came from from Spain uh, a lot of magic came from Spain the, the Picatrix and the translation of Arabic texts uh, came through the interaction of the, the uh, Arabs, Jews and Christians in, uh, in places like this where the 
the Jews, for example, may have been honest brokers at certain times between the two groups. And you had this great efflorescence of of magic and mysticism. So there's when I went to or lived in, in Spain for a couple of years, you begin you can find examples of the Christian tradition, of the of the Jewish tradition uh, before the expulsion in fourteen ninety two and the Moorish tradition, which makes you look at the at the world in in a different way. Um, so but even when I when I lived in, in London the uh, for a few years, I studied, and uh, I go there. I go there regularly. I have m- uh, my relations uh, there. Um, if you walk around, and, and walking is very important to me. I used to walk out to the to the in the west of Ireland, or walk in in, in, in the hills, and in cities, uh, I've always walked. I don't have a car. I've never driven. I've never been attracted to drive from a car. So uh, I love walking around cities. And walking around London, it's very, very easy to, to come in contact with the past, to walk the same places that, that Dickens walked, or Swedenborg, or all the great figures uh, in, in uh, a lot of great figures in history, and a lot of great figures in mysticism. Swedenborg was a figure that came to, I became very interested in when I moved to Sweden. Uh, but of course, he, he lived in he lived in London and again was very, very informed by uh, the Kabbalah and various uh, figures who lived there. So the, the urbanscapes have have this great life as well if you're prepared to l- look for them. And I think that that contact is important. I think that when people spend their life driving, and now I'm not trying to be, I'm not saying that everyone has to go around and uh, live in the past, but we have to balance things. And when you drive around, you're not in contact directly with the earth. But there is a lot to be said for having contact and having your feet on the ground. And we're getting more and more distant from uh, a way that we have lived for uh, thousands and thousands of years. So it's very, very funny to me or ironic or paradoxical that people who are so entranced and so who love the theory of evolution um, immediately go on and act in a way which is inconsistent with the evolutionary state we've got to. If we've, if we've spent thousands, millions of years evolving to be able to walk, it's very, very funny that at the point in which we have discovered and have embraced the theory of evolution, that we decide that uh, we shouldn't be walking anymore. I don't, I don't really, I haven't it's really totally that. true, yeah. Uh, walk that out. <clears throat> so... Um, the uh, I, I I always I, I painted for a long time and I paint I, I got the chance to be in in Newgrange at at, uh, at midwinter um, one year which I was, I was very lucky to be in there and and that certainly had an impact on me in relation to painting that was, that was a, a, a first really kind of significant painting for me where I had to to try and capture the feeling of it in some way. Uh, and I've painted consistently for a long time. I painted when I was in Spain, and I painted when I was, when I was a student. So, uh, and, and, and I'm still painting. I I, uh, I lived in Scotland for a long time. I went to after being in in, uh, in the Basque country. I came back to Ireland 
uh, I came back. It was it was it was a funny period, just about the time before, about a week before I, I was meant to come back to Ireland. My mother died, and and I came back to Ireland. So there was, uh, I went to Spain after that, then came back to Ireland again, and I was considering a few directions. There was a few things that I felt I could be equally happy happily happy doing. I could concentrate on painting. I could concentrate uh, on writing. I could concentrate on teaching. I could concentrate on lecturing. I wasn't that inclined to practice, but I would if, as a barrister, I would if that that path opened up. Uh, and I was also interested in alternative health. I did a, a short course in massage, and I was very, very interested in alternative complementary uh, medicine, and, uh, which is another associated with spiritual evolution in in, in a number of ways. So I went back to, uh, I took a job in in Scotland because it gave me scope to set up a new degree. It was about European law, which was quite new then. And it gave me an opportunity to open up new areas of law. I was interested in the future. So I, I wrote modules and wrote a course which, had subjects like communication technology law. This is quite a long time ago. And uh, antitrust law, competition law, EU law, and subsequently subjects such as China and world trade. So they were quite innovative. Uh, For example, I did did a series of lectures in the early 90s to Finland over some kind of computer. I don't know what type of computer it was, but there wasn't anyone else really doing it up there at that time. Uh, I, I worked in Dundee and in St. Andrews subsequently, so I taught in business schools and in the, the Department of International Relations when I was over at St. Andrews. Uh, and again, I, I drew a lot from Scotland. Scotland is a very interesting place. I, I love the people of Scotland. Uh, the history is fantastic. It's a very, very interesting place. Of course, I suppose at the time I was in Scotland, uh, the, the woman J.K. Rowling was writing her Harry Potter in Edinburgh. There was, a, you know, if you look at some of the the these, the Scottish connection is there in a lot of writers, and of course Edinburgh is a great city for for writers and a, a lot of people who are interested in the supernatural. A book that I'm, I'm and a person I'm very interested in is the the Reverend uh, Kirk, who wrote The Secret Commonwealth in, in 1691. And I think it's probably, uh, he should be regarded as a, uh, a parapsychologist because he, he, sought to, he sought to chart the stories and ideas of, of fairies which were, uh, which were available to him. He, was, he, he had learned Gaelic or Irish, as, as, he, as he called it, um, and he believed that it was important for him to go out and to collect evidence from people of their experience of interaction with fairies and elves and other creatures, which he did. And he believed that that was consistent with his his religious uh, understanding. So he was a very he was a very uh, enlightened man. So uh, there's, there's interesting figures uh, in Scotland that. Uh, that deserve being looked at. Uh, it's it's an interesting place, and so so you, you always pick up something from 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 where you are. Uh, and then I, I ended up in I, I 
in Sweden, as is a number of reasons. I decided that uh, my wife is from Sweden. We decided that we were going to move to Sweden. Um, I was disillusioned with certain things. The Iraq War certainly changed my uh, my view of uh, geopolitics. The, uh, that that was significant in relation to my perception of what the reality and the uh, the words were. Uh, and so when I came to, to to Sweden, I said I was going to concentrate on painting and writing and looking after the family. And that's what I've done. And uh, in that process, getting a bit of space, I've the mystical the mystical direction became very very important. And at a certain stage, I began to feel as if you were receiving you receive an inspiration in a very direct way. Now, this happens when you're painting, that you feel that the, the, uh, the, the spirit is moving through you. I know some people say, oh, that's demonic or whatever, and of course, the word demon, daemon, etc., going back to Socrates, is a, is a very interesting uh, part of, of, of mysticism. But... If you look back through all the mystical traditions, there is an idea that everyone has a higher self. I see it as a kind of figure of eight in, in a way that one moves up from one's lower being through the heart and head and extends oneself out so as if the, the, the cross and the figure of eight is somewhere above the head, uh, that there is another figure. There's a, an idea in all the... Persian traditions, in Manichaeism, Zoroastrianism, that uh, there is a, a higher figure. For some people, you could say that this is an angel. Uh, for the artist, is the muse. It's the idea of a higher source of inspiration, which is beyond your conscious, cognitive, constructive uh, approach to the world. And that kind of became a bit clear to me uh, through the process of painting, and through the process of writing. And, for example, uh, I, I did a series of studies or explorations of uh, Rembrandt. And Rembrandt, of course, did his self-portraits. And I, I began to study his technique and how he painted and why he painted and why he used the colors he did and how he, he painted and what brush strokes he used. And began to recreate, not literally, but in the style at which Rembrandt did. I and mean, if you begin to do that, you begin to kind of enter into a, 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 a funny crossing of time when you're, you're sitting there looking at Rembrandt's face doing the same techniques as he would have done a few hundred years ago. And you begin, it begins to open up your kind of psychic, your psychic uh, facilities in some way. Painting is a neglected source of, of psychic de development um, and uh, well by focusing on him in such an intent way you're also calling him um, to you calling his spirit I'm a, I'm a painter too so I, I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of yes. calling down the muse calling down the inspiration uh, calling down the holy spirit for you know yes. another name yeah. Um, yeah. And it it absolutely 
um, moves through you and works with you. It's it's an extraordinary feeling. Yes, and even in things like even in details like that, when you begin to look at, for example, I think one of the oldest icons of I was looking at a discussion of one of the oldest icons of Christ, a very beautiful, a very beautiful icon, very simple, but the commentator was trying to explain why the two eyes looked quite different. One seemed to be looking upwards and one seemed to be uh, looking straight at the viewer. Now, the, there's a number of different interpretations. It could, of course, be that the artist just painted like that, you know, and, and, and <laughs> right. uh, they didn't quite get it right. It could be that. It could <laughs> be that the model had a, a type of astigmatism. I don't believe that. But, you, you know, you, you have to look at a range of explanations. But really, there's a symbolic explanation about the difference between the human eye and the mystic eye. So one eye is looking at the world and one eye is a spiritual eye. And yet you, you, that's, that's, a, that's the correct interpretation in my, in my view. And mm-hmm. you see this in Dürer, that there are certain practices that are indicated in the mystical practices they're indicated in the paintings but we don't know how to look at them anymore they used to use various uh, spiritual practices looking at one eye the right eye in a mirror and this type of stuff um that you, you that are forgotten about so they're making references in the paintings to these things and people cannot see them so by engaging with the paintings you begin to learn. Here's another little simple observation, for example. When I, I was doing those paintings and I began to ask myself, well, why has Rembrandt got so many clothes on him all the time? He, he's always, in the paintings, he's always very well dressed up. He looks like he's dressed for winter all the time. And in fact, although people say about the impressionistic use of color on his nose, and if you look up closely, you'll see that his nose will have red and yellow and green little flecks if you, if you look very closely, very subtle. Um, and I began to realize that he was cold in a lot of the paints. And I was thinking, well, well that's... But it is a simple observation, but it, it, it's not made sufficiently. And I, so I investigated that. And, of course, that, he painted at the time of the Little Ice Age in, in, uh, in Europe, when the temperatures dropped, when the Swedish army, I think it was at that time, could march across Denmark or, or the, the Baltic was frozen in places when they skated on the Thames. And you see a lot of pictures from that period uh, of a Europe that doesn't exist at the moment. But uh, it made me think that the, uh, you know, scientists always talk about global warming, but the reality is that there's, a, there's always a big threat in Europe of the volcanoes in Iceland causing a, a winter across the Northern Hemisphere, uh, and it's funny when I'm looking at Rembrandt uh, in the cold back then. There's information to be to be gleaned from rational things if we look at them, and there's a, a deeper level, as you said, we can engage in the spiritual uh, thing. So, um, and realism, that, realism was so important to him and and other painters at that time. They were really you know, focused on perspective and ca- capturing what the the human eye was seeing as well yeah. as the deeper dimension. Yes, yeah. But uh, so the, the 
in the writing terms, um, I, I, I hadn't been thinking about mysticism as mysticism. I hadn't been thinking about consciousness. I had read a lot about those things at various stages, but not in a coherent way, not in the sense that I had fully formed views about consciousness or, or, or whatever. I, I, I was very interested. When I had space, I began to try and understand what was happening politically in the world because, I mean, I've met a number of the figures that are, have been significant and played a role, and I've watched their careers, and I've seen where they come from, what they do, what, how they get on, and I've learned a lot about uh, the geopolitical structure and how that works. I was interested in the EU. The last year that I, I was working at the academy or at the university, I, I was invited by both the Academy of European Law, which is a quite prestigious body, and the Chinese Academy of Social Scientists to lecture to them. So I, w I was learning from from people that were very engaged in shaping the world uh, as we see it, but uh, I wasn't quite happy with uh, how how the world was unfolding and how it was meant to be unfolding. So I began to to kind of question a lot of the uh, or how policy is shaped and what's going on behind the scenes, and that led me down one to, to have a quite pessimistic view of, of 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 how the world political system is evolving. Uh, and in relation to the COVID, I understand the positive interpretation of what's happening, but I'm I'm very concerned about the the wider context, but we can talk about that uh, again. But anyway, the, uh, on a personal level, I was, I was interested in, uh, I became interested in the mystical context when lines began to come into my head. In the same way as the paintings, it seemed, and this is a process that you can see in a number of, uh, loads of writers, that the, a line or even a, a chapter in a book appears to them. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this, and it, it, it happened to him. Um, Mary Poppins, it, it, the, I think the first two or three chapters kind of came to uh, P.L. Travers in, 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 uh, when she was sick. It, it's a constant thing that something seems to appear. Now, of course, you can say, well, this is just from another part of the brain, this is, uh, and that's the obvious explanation. But the as you know from, from, from your, your work and, and uh, painting and other things, it seems that it's not consciously constructed by the, that part of your brain. And in that sense, it appears to be self-contained and from a different place. So with the Mystical Accord, the, the first book, it started off, I left my, I was leaving one of my daughters to, to her play school, and she went to a kind of play school now and then, just at her leisure uh, when she wanted to, um, to, to meet other kids and, and usual. And so we used to take our time when we were going there, and we'd climb trees and be late. And all the, 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 the ladies didn't like when we were late, but we were often late because we were climbing trees on the way. It's great fun. And uh, so I remember going one morning, and the, the apple blossoms were out. So we couldn't rush and we were climbing the trees and the sun was shining and I was walking home and then a line came into my head which said there has been a, a certain failure of spiritual evolution and 
or words to that effect. And it seemed to be very, very... I hadn't been thinking about that context. It wasn't something I was reflecting on. And there were 17 syllables in the in the line as I came. I noticed I, I noticed there was something distinct, distinct about it. And I, I began to... If lines came to me, and there were about 17 syllables, it seemed of that type, I began to write them down. And over a period of time, I began to to see a, a set of a pattern, a story about lack of spiritual evolution and, and uh, need to ev- to, to, for consciousness to evolve, and that we are consciousness, that we are that we are spiritual, that consciousness is the spirit, that the spirit is meant to evolve, that we have to evolve, that we evolve through a process of purification and relinquishment of things we don't need and focus on finding our our true self and that there's an element of a journey uh, in that, that we go on a journey, it may be external or, or internal. On that journey, we have to look at what is illusory and what is real in terms of the spirit, that we have to learn to distinguish between the two, that we have to distinguish between knowledge and information and things which uh, are different or between knowledge and wisdom, and that if we do, we begin to reach a different level. And uh, I, I've described the, uh, the, the levels. One, what happens in the in the mystical in the mystical uh, endeavor, there is a uh, a process that you can see by looking at the the various perennial traditions. Now, uh, I've defined mysticism might be useful in, in the mystical accord uh, in this way. I've said that mysticism involves the the difficult to explain but meaningful perception or experience of elevated, ecstatic, edifying, extraordinary or altered states of consciousness involving a loss of self, access to a new reality, combined with a sense of unity and often a distortion of time and space, emerging as a result of practices or caused by events, which then significantly significantly increase individual commitment to the pursuit of inner wisdom or spiritual consciousness and usually reduce existential despair. So I began to to say, well, what is mysticism? And I began to research then and, and... go through as much information, some, much of which I had looked at a long time ago, but to try and do it in a coherent way and to identify what people believe mysticism to be. And from that, I became very, very conscious that the mystical journey is an individual journey, that the, it's hardwired into us, that every individual has access to it, that all cultures have mystical dimension, that every religion comes from the mystical journey of individuals, that this is a journey and an evolution that every individual is supposed to go on in different shapes or form, that we have to, we have to do this, and this is, in fact, our central purpose in this existence, as I would, would say it. And that the failure to do so is the basis of the failure of all the other problems. I don't believe that there is a yes. material solution to a spiritual problem. That the, the noblest people are 
endeavouring to try and find material solutions that will never satisfy a spiritual uh, a spiritual lack. That that's totally individual. That's totally correct. Yep, totally. Yep. You shouldn't be letting an Irish man talk too much. You don't give him a... No, no, no. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. This is so important um, to articulate because it it really is that basic. It really is that simple. And all of these discussions about material solutions, there's only one solution, and that is to go within uh, and awaken to who you are as a spiritual being having a, a physical experience. Yeah. And and I know you know that because your life, uh, from what I have seen and from what I've learned, uh, indicates that, that pattern. It indicates that you've been open to uh, mystical experience, that you've had, had mystical experience, that those mystical experience or events have had an impact on you that has directed where you have gone to, that you have evolved through various processes. And in the process of evolution, the universe has opened up so that you will follow particular paths and will be able to utilize those gifts to make connections so that you may have never thought that you would, I don't know, but you you would uh, be cooperating with the Lakota uh, nation, and I see and I listened to, to your interviews, and, and they were uh, very, very interesting to hear about the sacred bundle and to hear about the and to be reminded of the, the various prophecies. I've been very interested in the seventh generation uh, prophecy, uh, for example. I wrote about that in or mentioned it in articles I wrote years ago, uh, and I believe it to be true that this is the time that this is the opportunity for native uh, peoples. To, to flourish, uh, and I believe that the, the Lakota Sioux, uh, with their proud history, and uh, are, are going to, to, to be a beacon. So it's no surprise to me that you would be uh, operating in that domain. And uh, so, so I, I, the, the pattern is clear when you look at certain people's lives. You can see it's the hero's journey. Uh, and Campbell didn't perhaps emphasize sufficiently for me uh, some points that it is a spiritual thing. I know, uh, of course it is, uh, but it really is a pattern of spiritual evolution and a key point in the hero's journey that everyone has to go on. It's a different thing for different people, but they have to come back with something. So you go and do your things and learn uh, there may be in everyone's life and in, in mystic's life, there's periods of darkness. There's light and darkness, light and darkness. And the mystic comes back with something that they can offer to the community. So for me, the work that you're doing, and when, when I heard about the, the Thunder Heart Center, that was, it was quite amazing because uh, that, that film was very impressive. It was one of the, the few films that I think survives very well. Uh, I, I had stayed for a very short time on a and in a Native American reservation in Canada. And after, after staying on the, uh, on the reservation, um, I, think, I think one of the Native people recommended that film, so I had a look at it, and I was very impressed because it looked authentic. It looked like it captured what I had experienced in relation to the uh, perhaps 
circumstances of impoverishment for historical reasons, as, as we all know, but deep riches of spirituality which uh, far transcend the, the relevance of, of those factors. And it's very, very important for younger uh, Native people to realize that they have a great gift and they have a great heritage and that despite whatever temporary passing circumstances of apparent impoverishment and despite narratives of backwardness that was always foisted by an industrializing society, uh, it's not true in relation to the most important thing, the spiritual journey. So the technology of spiritual evolution is there. I'm not saying everywhere in, in native peoples because um, it's not going to be the same because we know that it was repressed and it was forbidden. So, of course, uh, it's not going to be as healthy, but it's still very much there. And I was very impressed when I arrived over in Canada. And I remember I, I, I was going to speak there and I appeared up at the place where I was going to speak and, and some person, a native person said, you, you um, I had a dream about you last night. And that was quite interesting. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, then at the same time, I remember a meeting an, another person who was a student, and he was a very tall man, and uh, a very he had that poise that you see uh, in, in native people, uh, very quiet dignity. And he said to me, he was asking me what I was doing there, and he said that he'd done an essay, and he went to his supervisor and he told her about a dream he had. And she said he was psychotic. <laughs> I said, oh, no. <laughs> and I, I was thinking, oh, in this day and age, with all the history, that the universities still have such strange views in the context of when they're dealing with a very rich, spiritually evolved culture. It's very, it's very hard for me to process that. It's still like that, you know, and, and when you're dealing with the the scientism, uh, which I'm a great critic of, not scientific that, endeavor, but science. That level of judgment. Yeah. 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 That judgment, that failure to see, the failure to look at uh, a different view. And I was influenced by certain, uh, there's a, 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 an essay called The Phenomenology of the, the Vision Quest, where they, where the writer, I think it's McPherson and, and uh, um, yeah, it was one of, one of the writers, and they, they they use Western Western philosophical tradition to explain why it was very very important to process the subjective experience of native peoples uh, in the vision quest, and uh, so there's ways of doing it. So people that are poorly grounded in philosophical tradition are the ones who. Uh, in, in, in the academy, fail to, to to be open to these uh, these things. But the the spiritual tradition is very very strong. It's 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 great that you're doing the work. And for me, what is happening is that there is the emergence, the, and this is what I think is important, of a a network with no structure, with no form, no formality. Uh, which will, which is happening between people who are on a mystical path or is a process of evolution, where through that 
evolution, they can recognize other people who are on a similar trajectory, and they understand what, from their own individual uh, experience, what has to be done. So, in a way, like the invisible hand of the market, as Adam Smith talked about, there is an invisible process happening, and this was predicted in many ways by Eckhart Tauzen uh, a few hundred years ago when he talked about the invisible college or the congregation of light. And this is happening now, and it's going to happen from people from different spiritual traditions uh, without a structure, because the, this is the, the most important thing of all. Structures kill mystical and spiritual evolution. In fact, they're designed to do so. So when a, a figure comes along and tells what the spiritual reality is, if we want to take Jesus, for example, we see that there will be a struggle for control of the narrative that goes on, and it's gone on for 2,000 years. And we see that they bury the, the other stories. If we look at, for example, the Coptic Gospel of Thomas, I find that the most accessible of the Gospels in mystical terms where, where Jesus says, if they ask you where you come from, tell them you came from the light that came into being of its own accord, for example. And where he mm-hmm. explains that, where, where he says that it's amazing that the spirit is in the body uh, and it would be more amazing if the spirit uh, emerged in words to that effect from uh, from the body, kind of anticipating in my my view the ideas about consciousness and whether it was emergent or not. But it was clear it's clear from the Coptic Gospel of of Thomas that we're we're vessels for for, for spirit. Um, but so those those as we know were were buried and and, and surfaced not not or, or with good reason in 1945, just after the devastation of the Second World War, and I think that that was meant to happen, that the the stories of uh, more convincing spiritual stories emerge, and we see that uh, the stories get get edited, get changed, get altered for for other people's purposes. And always we get the interposition of, by people who are not necessarily spiritual, who are often very literal, who have, who don't have the original mystic openness of the the, the people who were the mystics that gave the doctrine, uh, and we end up with a distorted result. Spiritual evolution is for everybody, even if they are practitioners of a particular religion. You can't avoid that spiritual individual journey, even if you are abiding by the doctrines and practices. Uh, of a particular religion. And that's why in the next phase of mystical evolution, there can't be an institution. There can't be the international mystics of the whatever. All of those institutions are subject to capture. Uh, They're subject to capture for other interests. They're subject to distortion. And in fact, one of the explanations, as I know from the geopolitical context, of why a lot of the contemporary political problems are is because institutions are captured by groups that we don't know about for various interests from all across the political spectrum. And it has a profoundly distorting role. So it's very, very important 
that mystics evolve in their own domain and having done so, when they're at the point that they can bring something back, they can bring the boon back to the community, which the community may reject or whatever, that's not always inevitable that they accept it, that they do so. And that, as, as Jeffrey would say, like that once you are the best version of yourself, the, the universe begins to open up opportunities. Uh, I, 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 I've noticed that in a different way, and I've always had this feeling that if you do what you're meant to, that you can do, uh, that people appear to help you. And this is a common mystical uh, tradition. Uh, the champions appear. And you can see it in, some, in the idea of, not necessarily in the law of attraction, but a similar thing, that there's an effortless path. You can see it in Zen. Once you're on the right path and you begin to do the things that you're able to do on a, on a process, on a path of, of evolution. But it has to be individual. And the alternative that there's going to be a number, of, there are a number of alternatives that I know of where people are saying, well, we can do this, we can control it, we control it this way, we can link this way. Uh, and, and a lot of them will be based on coercion or control. And this is, this is the difference between the mystic and the magician. The mystic doesn't believe in coercing people. So if they're mystical and they're coercing people, it just doesn't, it just doesn't go together. Whereas the magician does coerce people. That's, that, that's, that's the story of Prospero in, in The Tempest. By exercising his rough magic, he has control over people that comes in his sphere of power, over his daughter, over the land, over the spirits, evil and good over Caliban and Ariel. So in the end, he abjures his, his rough magic because there was something else and he was convinced by Miranda and, and Ariel, the, the sprite. But the, that same mentality exists in relation to people who have the solutions, who say, well, we can organize this great utopia by doing such and such, by using coercion, by using control. It's the only, the only way we can oppose that is by a mass of individuals who are evolving spiritually. And they have to do it. You cannot cede your power to somebody else. If you cede your power to somebody else, you're creating a, a monster, effectively. Every time that people have ceded their sovereignty to institutions, that becomes, in its corporate entity, a spirit that can be uh, destructive. And it, it, it comes in the, the idea of, if you think of the idea of conjuring, uh, the conjuring, usually people have the idea of summoning, summoning demons and summoning devils or summoning spirits or summoning thunder or whatever, uh, positive and negative. But the conjuring really refers to, in, in the Latin, is to make a promise with or to swear by or to swear with something else. It focuses on the swearing of your or your commitment to somebody or something else. So with Faust, he, he, he conjures the demons and he makes a pact with the devil. So that, that, that's the Faustian pact. But it's the pact, it's the promise, it's the giving up of something to somebody else is the essence of, of the evil as the, as the writers conceived it. And it's the same process whereby you say, 
or once says, I'm a spiritual person, but now I'm giving my power to this institution. And as, and as you do so, you give your spiritual power, you are actually giving them spiritual power. So the corporate entity gets power, and that can be devastating, as we've seen institutions uh, abuse their power, authorities lie, authorities attract people that want to capture them, institutions are used for other purposes, uh, institutions may give people power and authority that they can abuse, so one has to be very, very careful. So for that reason, I think the idea of the congregation of light, where there's no formality, there's no, uh, there's no official connection, that the people begin to recognize each other because of where they have gone on their individual evolution. I think that's, that's the way the next phase will be because I've no, I've no doubt, I'm quite pessimistic, well, I, I see a great threat. At a stage in which the native peoples around the world in Australia or uh, in uh, the United States, for example, uh, have an opportunity to, to reclaim some of the things that have been taken from them uh, in legal means and, uh, and, and hopefully, therefore, the opportunity for economic development and political development and spiritual development and the development of their communities. There is a, a, a threat to the human race itself. So this, this is a bigger problem uh, because if you look at people like Yuval Harari and his book on Sapiens, they're quite clear that the human race is in its last generation or two. Now, it's not because of the environment or global warming, but it's because, as Arthur C. Clarke predicted in the 60s, that the next phase of evolution is fusion of man and machine. Now, as man and machine is fused, spiritual development becomes impaired because things which are associated with the vessel for the, the spirit will be subject to external control. At the stage that we're in, we're in danger of becoming cyborgs. And, and we can't have, there will be a transfer of spiritual consciousness or perhaps in a very dystopian society, a, a channeling of spiritual consciousness into some technological form. And, and those possibilities these are real threats. So the mystical awakening, there, there has always been an idea that there are a lot of mystics who, who are out there who appear at certain stages uh, and will assist in a transition. We're, we're at that stage now where where we need to have individuals evolving on their own, uh, in their own way, with their own genius, their own, their own particular characteristics, their own individuality, in their own spheres, so that they can contribute to the uh, protection of the individual, the human race itself, irrespective of, of, of skin color or identity, the human race, and in particular the human spirit contained in the human race, because that's, that's, that's very, very important. Uh, and there is a, an existential threat to that, because the, there is an intense movement to substitute or control consciousness, because individual consciousness, consciousness for a variety of reasons is anathema to people who want to control things. Uh, and we, we have a grave threat uh, which, which, which is, is coming by the day. For example, when, when I wrote 
a novel which, before this the, the, the COVID crisis, it, it foresaw a natural disaster in, in in London, which led to a a heavy-handed approach by the government, which interfered with human rights in a significant way, with the objective that they could extend um, technological control of the people. So there was no mention of 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 such things at the time it was before the COVID crisis but then when this crisis happened I said well this is very similar this is very similar to the pattern that I feared Uh, I I chose a particular natural disaster for artistic reasons but I could have chosen uh, I could have chosen one like what happened but the the idea in in history this is what happened in Japan the the if you like, the extremism in Japan, uh, the extremist element that came to power uh, leading up to the Second World War was after an earthquake really retraced back in Tokyo, which you often have a crisis which gives opportunity for a certain extreme form of government to come into into power. And uh, my, well, I don't want to be a spoiler alert, but basically it was the idea that such a crisis would be used to increase uh, surveillance and uh, control of the population through chips, etc. This is this is happening. It's getting it's it's getting very very difficult to resist it. That there is an awful lot of force and power whose sole objective is to convince us that inevitably we are going to be linked up with you know, a group consciousness, get the chip in your head, whatever, uh, and there's, there's new technologies emerging which will avoid that chip. But the end result of that is bad for people. It's bad for, for, for human spiritual development. So not only is the mystical thing important in relation to individual spiritual evolution, but it's necessary that we begin to have a universal loose affiliation of people who are clearly committed to spiritual evolution from a whole range of different ways that recognize the common threat and in their own ways can begin to seek creative solutions to counteract the inevitable tendency uh, to fill the skies with satellites to, to, to control us. I mean, during this, this COVID thing, it's noteworthy that they, 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 they stuck up thousands of, of, of satellites in the sky that the 5G was, right. was, was implemented. All this happened, all this stuff that was predicted, all this which is, is part of the surveillance state and all, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's real. It's not, I've been following, as I said, I used to teach and write about communications technology. Although I don't have a mobile phone, that doesn't mean that I don't understand about that. I was more interested in what the big picture is and people look at the small picture and they have great difficulty in understanding the, the principal forces. As Marshall McLuhan said, the, any new technology is an extension of our nervous system. We're linked up now to a different nervous system. And the problem is we're subject to control by algorithms, artificial intelligence, that can predict and anticipate our behavior or force us into scenarios for society, there's a lot of games going on. A lot of a lot of this, the various groups that are emerging and will emerge in the next the next year or two, will be part of a game basically 
and the whatever they're fighting about will not be the issue. As that is happening, the bigger plan of or the bigger threat of the huge corporate entities to gain technological control that is very very difficult to opt out of uh, will will grow. So that, that's a, a fear, but the only it won't be solved by attacking or by a, a purely political response because it moves, it mutates, it isn't in any particular place, it's everywhere. And, but what it will be, what will protect the human race is some uh, enhanced and massive uh, focus on individual spiritual evolution. And in that role, again, I, I foresee that some of the the people like the, the, the Lakota Nation will be making great contributions for other people, to help other people in relation to recognizing their spiritual identity and learning who they are and learning to recognize themselves and learning to recognize their own culture and to refine and to rediscover that which, which has been hidden and has been taken away because uh, there is a, also a, a very strong tendency to wipe the past away. This is a bigger thing. It's not just in relation to historical monuments. It'll, it's happening in relation to prehistoric things as well. So you can easily create a different narrative. There was nothing there before. Everything was backward. There wasn't all this great knowledge of astronomy. Uh, and as well, when you have a very digitized environment, then your algorithms can begin to take out unsavory details that don't fit your plan. So it's very, very important that... So the mystical journey of each individual uh, is important, not just for the individual, not just for the belief that you are a spiritual continuum that comes from somewhere and that will go somewhere, but also that uh, the world needs it and the earth needs it because all spiritual traditions have respect for things like water and for air and for the natural environment. So... Uh, that's there, and it has, to, it has to be tapped into as a real thing. It won't work as a scientific, as a scientific uh, instruction, because scientists don't seem to, to love nature. Uh, that's generalisation, but I mean, uh, it's not it's not written at the top of their, their their game plan. And it's even funny if you look at all these people that are preaching about health now and from the government. A lot of them don't look very, very healthy when they're preaching about healthy. They don't look like people that have been out and enjoying the, the sun and the wind. And you know, So um, we have to be very, very careful that we take responsibility for our own spirit, our own health, our own... Uh, and then from there, that's where we make our contribution from. So that, that's why I think the mystical journey is, is very, very important. And the, the things that you'll do... Uh, and the people that you're, you're working with in the, the Lakota Nation, uh, you can see also uh, well, I have great respect for your appreciation of the value of art in relation to changing consciousness because it's been neglected with a lot of focus on the kind of industrial production of art, the magical power of art as an inspirational force is being ignored and I'm delighted to see that in your observations, you have a very strong concentration uh, on the power of art. And when I think to Leonard uh, Peltier and that case in particular, and his uh, and the artwork he produced 
in that edition. Um, it's very, very important. I was aware of that case for a long time, uh, and it's, it's, well, I hope I get a bit of grace to begin to, that it, that it begins, to, it changes quickly, and you get some uh, result of that struggle, uh, and that, that, that's part of the process of repair. But uh, the, your use of art and your, your giving of platform is very, very important because art can speak to people. And actually, yeah, sorry. It's, it's one of the ways in which humanity can uh, access higher realms of thought and, and higher dimensions, um, particularly if you're, if you're engaged in art making in some way. And everyone has a part of themselves that, that is an artist or a writer um, yes. within them. It's really the 1980s when art uh, kind of sold out to money and uh, the quality of the art tanked and prices at auction started to go through the roof. There's no connection to reality between a painting being sold for 150 or close to $200 million at auction, you know, f f and the reality of current day living with all the poverty on the planet. Um, but yes, it's, yeah. it's so interesting to see in these times that artists who, who really are the shaman of our culture are starting to think about their art and selling their art, donating their art and selling their art to create housing for the homeless or feed uh, food pantries, supply, you know, food for food pantries yeah. in these, in these times. And um, you see and, and the you consciousness, yeah. you see it spreading. I, I know I do. Um, you worked with, uh, you worked out in the system and, and the context of the homeless people, and you, you were involved in a, a gallery as well for a while, I, I believe. Is that correct? I did have a gallery um, in yeah, Vermont yeah. So for you, for a while. I'm not yeah, a very good gallery yeah. sitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you have experience of that. And I'll give another example. Um, the, the three great artists in Britain in the uh, 20th century were uh, 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 considered by a lot. You had, you had Luce, a triangle of Lucian Freud, Francis Bacon, and Frank Auerbach. Now, uh, Frank Auerbach was born in in, in Germany. Uh, he he left there in 1938. Uh, could be 38. Yeah, I think it was 38. His parents sent him over on the on the uh, the kinder transport to, to Britain. Uh, they perished in Auschwitz. So he studied art, and he has a studio in, in North London. So he paints nearly every day of the year. He takes one or two days off, and he's been painting for the last how many years? He does nothing but paint. I think he goes to Brighton one day a year and maybe take Christmas Day off or something, but that's it. So he goes He goes to his his studio, and he, I know where his, his studio his studio is, but he has 
he has sitters who come in there every uh, every on a rota every week. He, he paints them, and he he's painting the same models uh, sometimes for twenty years. It's incredible. It's um, incredible. Incre- yeah, They're all figurative painters. Yeah, and and he goes out in the morning sometimes, and he paints uh, around uh, Moyne Crescent and Camden Town, and he paints things that. He wouldn't kind of look at a street corner or, uh, and they're beautiful. I, I like his landscapes, uh, but I, I, I bumped into him three times. Uh, I'm delighted that I have met him. Uh, and he's, he's, he's not interested in anything else. He's interested in art. And you're, you're, it's kind of very, very difficult to get your head around it, that this man is doing this stuff. He's creating this fantastic work well, uh, he will get a, a credit in the future as being one of the greatest artists that has ever lived but he's doing that and I've watched him walking down the road going, going to the shop and nobody knows who he is nobody mm-hmm. pays any attention to him it's incredible he doesn't want to, uh, attention to him but uh, I, I, I couldn't, let, I, I couldn't uh, not uh, I did talk to him a couple of times. He's a, he's a lovely man. You're talking to somebody that kind of has seen the Nazis, has seen his parents, his parents' family uh, perish, and he's still there producing art. And he, he's never, he never makes, he never plays, does any victim stuff, which he's perfectly entitled to do. He's there and he's on a mission to produce art, and he's focused on that. Uh, and it's, it's it's quite an incredible human human endeavour. Uh, it's, it's kind of it's almost incomprehensible to me. Uh, a lovely man, but when you see what real artists there are, and then you hear someone uh, like now I'll pick out Jeff Coons. Don't tell me he's a friend of yours or something. Or you oh no, him. I think he, I all of that. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, Madonna, of course, was. Um, yeah one of the key reasons and she admits it now she, you know she acknowledges that she was a pig but her music yeah. is really um one of the key things that denigrated art you know people yeah. people young people they're not so young anymore but um that listening to Madonna versus a, a true artist like Jesse Norman, for instance, um, people don't know the difference any longer, which is deeply no. troubling. You know, no, uh, they don't... A sinister, yes. Uh, uh, no, well, I was thinking about Jeff, Jeff Coons when he's saying, oh, my work, it's, very, it's a very generous work. And he's saying, what? You know, it's just meaningless. It makes no sense. It's meaningless. Uh, rubbish uh, ideas that they, that they make up. And when you're talking about Madonna, uh, I find it very, very interesting. And it's this very interesting kind of inversion uh, idea that you see. And it's a kind, kind of spiritual warfare. I'm not talking about her particularly. It is. Way these things. Yeah. But the, if you look at, for example, the Enlightenment, if you look at the Enlightenment, was not about enlightenment. You know, the, with a capital E, it certainly wasn't about spiritual enlightenment. They take the idea, the spiritual idea, and they turn it into something else so that the spiritual idea will be weakened. So right. it's no surprise, coming from Catholic Ireland, where people used to say, 
worship the Virgin Mary. All of a sudden, in the 80s and that, you had Madonna, who, of course, in Europe meant the Virgin Mary. You had right. the emergence of Virgin, Virgin all the companies, Virgin this, Virgin that, Virgin that. And that, that's, that's not accidental. Those, those, those things are an effort, in my view, to supplant the association that was there before with a spiritual connection. Because, as, as in one of the paintings, there is, a, in my view, there's a war. There's a war on the spirit. And it goes down to little funny things. Now, I, I know people will think it's paranoid, but if you begin to look at it, it's quite remarkable. For example, the phrase, oh, my God, you know, the people that say, oh, my God, generally, often, so when I hear them, the people that I know, oh, they're often atheists. And you say, well, what are you saying, oh, my God? You know, and, oh, my God, I'm heartily sorry for all my... It's the act of contrition in, in Catholicism. But what you have is the, the kind of promotion of certain phrases, ideas, uh, symbols, which begin to substitute what was there already uh, with something else. So the associations are broken up. You, you, you find this... You find this a constant thing to take a spiritual term and to change it into a commercial or an ordinary one to, to, to turn a, the sacred into the profane it's absolutely constant and this has an implication as well I think for the future of spirituality that the uh, doctrine is, becomes minimal that if you look at the great spiritual teachers it's quite easy to identify that what Jesus said was 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 important about uh, love God, love your neighbour, etc. It's quite simple. The, the, the same as relation to the Buddha or whatever. There's very very simple values of compassion, care, empathy, uh, and I think creativity, uh, emphasis on the spirit. There's, there's, a, there's the same principles appear in all uh, religions. But once you begin to uh, make doctrine too much, well then the doctrine takes over and, and sucks the spirit out. So the, 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 the spirituality of the future will, have, will focus on very, very simple principles like compassion and creativity, for example, because they're two of the principles. That creativity is the essence of all deities, all consciousness, all great higher consciousness, and compassion is the essence of all conduct on, on the earth. So, for, for people, for animals, for uh, so those things become are what the, what the mystic focuses on. They don't get lost in too much doctrinal discussion because doctrines can be manipulated, misrepresented, utilized by utilized by forces who don't care about the, the, the principles. Uh, and I think that that's another key. The mystics generally don't get bogged down into doctrinal things. And then also, when we look at the values of compassion and mercy, we see that it's a perennial and universal uh, idea, and it appears in most spiritual traditions. So what will happen, and what has to happen, is that within the traditions as well, that the mystical elements, the, 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 the spirit, people on a path of spiritual evolution, will begin to have... To, to, have an affinity outside the tribalism of their particular identities. Because no, if, if one believes in a higher consciousness, if one believes 
uh, in one God, for example. It can't make, it can't be any less valid if people from different spiritual traditions unite above structures to begin to cooperate and to avoid division and to avoid the manipulation that is so beloved of people that want to conquer other people by dividing them. So uh, I, I think that, that the mystical path is above all the doctrines but contained in them and that the, the people who give birth to the religions uh, are always talking about higher things. For example, uh, recently I've, I've written about light. The light is an essential idea in all spiritual traditions and it's crucial and critical in, in a number of them, particularly important. Uh, and the, uh, you, you can rationalize, for example, the mystical journey in terms of, um, of light, if I may, if, if, you, if, if I can. Uh, is that okay? Yes. Yeah. So, so I, I've, I've described the mystical um, path in another way in terms of five illuminations that uh, consciousness is often equated, or spiritual consciousness, or the spirit with light itself, that uh, in a lot of spiritual traditions, we are light. You see that God is light, Jesus says, you know, I come from the light, or you come from the light, the path is light, you see it in Islam, it's there, it's the basis of a lot of Kabbalah, it's in Buddhism, it's in all the tantric uh, uh, disciplines, it's there in all, light is critical. So, the first light that we have in us, the first illumination is consciousness itself. So we start off, that's a given to everybody. Everybody has consciousness, which I equate with spiritual consciousness, the spirit, and that's the first light. It, it, it is represented as a light. Some people can see that light, but everyone has it. The second illumination is where your, your mind and your heart begins to understand that we're light. So through the process of growth, you come to a realization that you're not just a physical body, you're not just this person, you're not just James Tunney talking about that. You are a, an individual whose essence is, is spirit and whose essence is, is light. And that's both in the heart and mind, that that's a realization. Now that could take a whole lifetime for a lot of people, um, but that's, that's very important to identify your true self. One stands outside the supposed persona, the false self, and sees the true self. That's the second illumination. The third illumination is where we move into mystical experience, where one, at a certain stage, through a particular event, say through a near-death experience, or through practices uh, designed to encourage a mystical experience, one has a sense of connection, of unity with the universe, of unity with a higher consciousness. Uh, and that's a third illumination, and that illumination feels like one is having ascending to something or something is descending to you. And if you look at, I suppose in Christian terms, the, the, the Jesus in the Jordan, the water is emphasized, but really it was a spiritual light coming down was the crucial thing in many senses at that stage if one looks at the sources. Um, so mystical experience opens up a a third illumination. A fourth illumination is when one, after having a, a mystical experience, one then begins to craft that 
and begins to work on that. And after a period of time, one effectively opens up what I call the nexus to the numinous, whereby through practice and concentration and concentration on certain goals or principles like compassion, one has a fairly constant contact with mystical experience. And I believe from your experience, as I've seen in, in your recent article uh, uh, on Nexus, that you're describing when you're talking about opening up your your chakras, and, and, and I believe you, you're describing a similar idea of, you know, that stage where one feels a more constant connection to, to, to the, the higher consciousness. And, and that has, the fourth stage could, again, it could last a, a, for a long period of time to different levels. And finally, the fifth illumination is death, because if you look at all the descriptions of dying, this is a thing that people don't concentrate sufficiently on, we're all going to die, and in traditional societies there's a way of dying, and there's a process of dying. And people like Dr. Peter Fen Fenwick, for example, as a, neuro, a neuroscientist, has, uh, has, has, has talked about, uh, from a neuroscientific perspective, he's recognized the phenomenon associated with death that people, mystics and native peoples have, have recognized for a long time that during death process, it's very, very common for someone to have contact with beings who have passed over, to have that there be phenomenon of light, light be seen by other people or witnessed emerging from the body, the person talking about moving towards the light, and of course in the near-death experience there's a light. So as we are moving and transitioning into the next phase, there is the light there, and that's the fifth illumination that we'll see in, in this incarnation. So it's another way of looking at it. I, I, I think, uh, well, again, that's what most recent book is about, it explains it a bit, bit, a bit larger way, but I'm trying to provide a map that other people can contextualize some of their experiences in and where they can realize that actually if you look at all the traditions that are explaining the same thing, there's a universal and perennial hardwiring explanation of, of why we experience certain things. Now, obviously, certain people are more proficient, the shaman, the medicine uh, men and women are know how to, to do this, and they're often people that will help other people go through experiences, vision quests, etc. They are specific technologies, but the process of spiritual evolution is hardwired into us. And if we begin to see it, well then, the fear, as you know from your experiences, one of the, pro one of the primary consequences of mystical experiences is that one loses fear, that fear of death disappears it's not, it can't be the same uh, that certain other fears associated with the material world alter and change and diminish. And it's a, it's a very useful framework for people to, to think about, and especially in a, in a complex world which is uh, changing by the day where we're living in what I described as a permanent cultural revolution where what you believe today will be held to be foolish tomorrow and the day after will be something different and that's deliberate that's designed to to unsettle and to destabilize people uh, and uh, we're so hooked up with the electronic nervous system that we can't avoid it 
uh, and it's very, very difficult. But the spirit is very strong and the world is often being changed and has always been changed by individuals. And individuals who are acting in communion, in concert, open to diverse spiritual experiences, uh, concentrating on their essential spirit, can, uh, with some kind of direction or help from some, some simple patterns, uh, begin to try and, and uh, improve or develop themselves. And through that, that's where the great rich, richness of, of people will come back to us, that people in the different di- dimensions will be able to assist other people through uh, bringing something back to the community. Um, so that's another way of looking at it. Well, James, there's actually a dream um, that I had recently that I would like to to share with you. But first, I just want to make the point that in the Lakota language, there's no word uh, for lying. It 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 doesn't exist in the Lakota language, and they also don't believe in writing anything down because as soon as you write it down. then it becomes a lie. It it becomes yeah. something to to abuse. Um, the, yeah. They have an oral tradition, which is passed yeah. down from generation to, to generation. I'm just busy flinging me books out as you say that. <laughs> so um, oh, yes, yes, I appreciate that. Yes, but um, I have been working with. Um, a Lakota friend who's been in federal prison for the past 10 years. Uh, I've recently gotten him a lawyer and he, um, he had been paroled, uh, but hadn't actually been released yet. He'd been granted parole and he made the misstep of getting together with his children whom he hadn't seen in, in years and uh, he went out of his geo- geographic area in order to do that. So he was thrown back in prison. And since then, requirements have changed. So he's been stuck uh, for almost almost two years now since he was granted parole. And we speak every Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. John calls me and... Um, a few weeks ago, I had a dream that ties in so closely to a number of the things that you've been talking about. And in the dream, it was a, a brilliant sunny day. The sky was blue, and I was at a lake. The water was gorgeous. Um, and suddenly, out of the water came dozens of Lakota men um, wearing jeans, basically, uh, no shirt, long, dark hair, and you'd see the top of their heads first, and they gradually, as a group, came walking out of this water, which was a, a, a complete image of purification, and of course, being in such profound sunlight uh, is purification again, in terms of, you know, the Sundance and this dream happened in August, which is still Sundance ceremony time. But on the shore was a lion, a male lion, happily there, but walking back and forth on the shore of the beach. And um, 
John and I have been talking about him organizing um, other prisoners because his constitutional rights are clearly being violated. Um, they let him out. You know, they granted parole. He's been back in jail for almost two years. He's more than paid his his uh, fair share of additional time for his misstep. He got the message. It's time for him to go home and be with his family. And so the, the dream for me was that all these prisoners have to work together and file a class action suit. But in the context of everything that you've been saying, it speaks even more of the Lakota being leaders for all of us and working in unison, um, being joined by the lion on the shore. That's very interesting. Um, you know, I, I could I could answer that. It'll take about two hours to to the talk that come to mind. <laughs> so I won't I won't go into the full details. And it's it's interesting uh, with the lion in particular. And I've been uh, reflecting on the lion in various contexts, uh, not least in, in Kabbalah, and, and uh, it's a very powerful symbol. But as you're saying that. Um, I can't remember the exact details, but there is a legend in Ireland about a a group of warriors who live in some way under or in the lake that we will reappear in the future. I'll get the reference for you. Uh, oh, wow. I, I, I presumed. It was actually, I think, was where Robert... Uh, Anton Wilson kind of played with the idea a bit. He turned it into a, in, in a bit more farcical way, I think, or a playful way in his book, The Illuminatus Trilogy. But he had gone to Ireland for, I think, about six years, and he was familiar with some of the stories. So uh, there is a, a lake, which uh, I, I think it's, it's not far from Newgrange, if I'm mistaken, that has some associations uh, with that, with the story of the emergence of warriors uh, from the lake, uh, which is interesting. And a funny thing as well, uh, we, m- me and my daughters, we, we, we swim a lot here because there's, there's something like a hundred thousand lakes in in, in, in uh, Sweden. I know you'll be probably getting emails saying, "Oh, there's only ninety thousand, ninety to a hundred thousand lakes." In Sweden. There's a lot of lakes swim, in Sweden. A lot of lakes. So I swim a lot. So we've we've nearly this year we've nearly not quite there. Swam two hundred times. We were just counting for a bit of fun. So it's very very it's very very funny when you do it because immersion in water is a very is a very uh, sacred thing. It's in, in in the Jewish tradition that immersion there's particular rituals associated with immersion in water. But when you do this is again a thing about I have with contact, to have contact with the earth, to have contact with water, to have contact with all the, not just for the physical, the nutrients and that, but it's a spiritual thing. And there is also in, in uh, various water spirits in, in, in Swedish uh, history, but the, you become very, very conscious when you, when you bathe so often 
that you do begin to uh, to identify with the spirit of the of the water. But uh, yeah, that that I, I can see that. Uh, I think you're right on both levels. There's often a very very practical, a very very practical uh, context where people need their immediate needs satisfied, and uh, the it's it's cruel. The, the the American, the U.S. legal system has been uh, particularly cruel uh, to, as far as I can see. I know it's not popular to say, but to, uh, I, I can see examples of many fathers. Uh, who have had a very hard time uh, because of very harsh interpretations and applications of the law. Uh, and, uh, of course, I'm very, very familiar with, with the litany of inju- injustices to, to Native people and the, the problems uh, that they have. But uh, I, I think you're right. I think there will be spiritual uh, emergence. And the, take, the, take the example of Ireland. Ireland went very, very suddenly after I left it, of course. I didn't get the benefit of this idea. Well, funny enough, here's, a, here's, a, here's, a, here's another analogy to what you're saying. It became the Celtic tiger economically. Uh-huh. Now, I never liked that, and I thought it was a disaster. Everyone thought it was great, but you had a shift from a country that had been not doing great economically to a country that was very materially successful, materially successful, and on, in my perspective, it lost a lot in that era. It changed radically, and uh, it changed in a way that probably cannot be recovered. I know a lot of people in Ireland say, "No, that's not true," or they wouldn't like to hear that. But in my view, it lost a lot. So, um, yes, uh, it, it, it's. What I have been thinking about in relation to native people, my prediction is that there will be legal successes uh, and that the that will operate as a catalyst for economic development and that will uh, facilitate uh, educational developments and also uh, interactions with the criminal justice system, which will be more positive than hitherto, I hope. Uh, but at the same time, Success is a great, a material success is a great threat to to spiritual uh, evolution at the same time, meaning that the balance has to be maintained. Now, I think that the Lakota will be able to to, to do so, but it's it's, it's uh, getting the balance right is very very difficult. That success can be a threat, or there can be a price for success, uh, particularly if it's a material thing. So. Uh, it's very, very important. I, I'm not lecturing anyone. I'm just saying from my per, per, perception. Uh, it's not. It's not for me to lecture anybody else. But I'm just. I'm. I'm, I'm just saying. I think you're, you're right about the emergence and the possibility. Uh, and uh, although I, I, just as I'm saying that, there's always a positive. There's always a, a dark side and a positive side that we have to interpret these things. The. Uh, I suppose we we must think of both. But emergence is certainly a, a, a theme, and I think it's very, very important to... Uh, you mentioned you were talking about the Kogi, on, uh, the Kogi people in Colombia. Right. Uh, on your, uh, yeah, and I, 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 when I was with... Uh, Jeffrey was talking to one of his, his friends who has, had just come back from the Kogi people, 
and they had they see themselves as far as I remember as the as the the big brothers in the spirit world and that they realise that their little brothers are doing are going very, very wrong, are doing very bad things to the environment and they seem to be interacting in a way that um I suppose to facilitate our spiritual evolution and a similar thing is going to happen uh from other native peoples. And it might be difficult as well for people that have been getting the wrong end of the stick for such a long time to believe that there are actually a lot of people out there that want to hear their voice and are probably desperate to hear their voice and look forward to hearing their their contribution. But that's the reality of it. And as far as I remember as well, there have been prophecies about the time when the if you want to say the white man, I don't want to get into that discourse, but you know what I mean, the European comes to the native people humbly in the future, and that will be the time for positive interaction, and that will be a different experience. Uh, and I think that, that, that that's, uh, that's happening. And I, I, Again, I've no, I've no truck, I've no, no interest in any of this uh, identity st- stuff. Uh, I think we're all spiritual beings, uh, and we have different experiences and different histories, but essentially we're spiritual beings and people from different perspectives can all contribute to the, the narrative we need for the human race. So it's a very interesting dream. But I, I know as I'm going to sleep tonight, I'll have ten other different interpretations <laughs> of that dream. <laughs> well, I, put, I look forward to, to hearing them, James. Yeah, and we would yeah. love to have you back in in the not too distant future um, to dis- to continue this discussion. Thank you so so much. This has been um, an inspiring talk that I know our audience will enjoy immensely, and will um, inspire them to do a lot of uh, thinking on their own. Th- thank you so much. Um, is well, thank you very is much. there Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I hope I didn't give you an ear bashing on that again. No, 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 no. It's just, um, it's, uh, you know, as as I discovered when I listened to you and Jeff, um, I just kept listening, you know, finished one, go to the next. And I um, I think it's, if your information right now is so important. Um, do you have a website? You'd like to share? We'll have, have it posted. A, it, it's oh, uh, jamestunny.com. Uh, there's there's a couple of James Tunny, but I'm the artist one. Uh, so, <laughs> okay, well, uh, we'll have uh, the link posted with your bio yeah, and your and, there's a, there's a and your photo. A new, a new thinking allows videos as well. But um, yes, yeah, it's it's been fantastic to talk to you. And again, as as talking to, I don't talk to everyone. I'm not interested. I, I find it difficult. Well. I'd prefer to talk to people that I feel that I'm learning off and that are in the same kind of ballpark that we can have a, a dialogue that, that goes somewhere. Uh, and I, I certainly appreciate uh, talking to you. And, and I know from your trajectory that we understand each other, so I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited to hear about the developments with uh, Thunder Heart and, and uh, with the... Dakota people and, and with the work that you're doing uh, and new observations. So 
Uh, thanks again for your input. It's very much appreciated. Oh, thank you so much. And um, we will have you back. Perhaps we'll have a, a second talk around the time the ma- the magazine comes out at the end of September, if that works oh, for yeah, you. Oh, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah just, okay, you just great. pull a string out me out me back, and I more like one of them dolls that keeps on going or the ever-ready, whatever they are. I don't want to be advertising. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. 